Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You do not understand. I have come for you. Subspace. I want to touch you. Dare to wonder. The Intrepid Radio Program with Scotty Roberts. Intelligent Talk. Well, I have no idea how that broadcast, folks. So hopefully all of you out there, both on the radio and in the and in the uh, uh, chat room and our YouTube channel and on Facebook and on uh, Twitter and all those different places where this is playing, uh, that was the show opener that you usually hear every night. It sounded very choppy on my end, so I don't know if it worked or not. Uh, it's the phone. It says I'm broadcasting in 5G even. Oh, it worked, said Field Guy. Well, that's good. On my end, it went, it went something like you could hear Race Hobbs, my uh, uh, announcer who did the uh, opener. He said, he said, Scott, ah, uh, uh, intrepid, uh, yeah. That's what it sounded like. And it chopped all over the place. Well, at least we're here. And I'm so glad that you're all here and that you decided to stop by. We already lost one uh, viewer uh, from the chat room. They must have got, said, wow, what about this chicken shit outfit here? So uh, anyway, welcome, everybody. Steph, good to see you. Sean, good to see you. Um, good to have everybody in here tonight. Uh, we're going to pick up right away where we left off with the gin the other night. And, you know, this is a topic that to me is utterly fascinating um, to think that now ask yourself this question. Sit back and go, self, do I believe that genies are real? Now, think of all the things you've seen about genies over the years in your life. Now, if you've studied them at all from a paranormal point of view or a metaphysical point of view, that's different. Uh, think of the way most people see genies. It's either something like uh, Robin Williams uh, voicing the blue uh, genie from Aladdin. Uh, or uh, who played him in the movie? Will Smith. Yeah, take that. Will Smith did it. And uh, who else did we have playing genies? There were other uh, Tales of the Arabian Nights movies made over the years. And we've seen genies. And, of course, my favorite when I was growing up 
was the ubiquitous reruns of shows like I Dream of Jeannie uh, with Barbara Eden, might I say, uh, no sexist uh, uh, drop of blood in my body, but hubba hubba, uh, to use an old phrase. Uh, but yeah, uh, uh, Barbara Eden was probably one of those first crushes I had as a young boy, and I didn't know why. <laughs> Until a little later, you know, it was interesting. Uh, the guy who played Admiral Nelson, was he Admiral? Uh, uh, no, Major Nelson in that show, Larry Hagman. Uh, he, I had once seen him in inter interview in the mid 1980s. I think it was when he was doing the show Dallas playing Jr. in Dallas. And, uh, <clears throat> he said, you know, in reminiscing, he says, I always wished I could have done a porn version of I dream of genie. So there you go. Uh, even he uh, saw the efficacy of uh, of uh, uh, Barbara Eden. Uh, Rafa Ed Segu, if I'm saying that right, uh, Sega, uh, Gin and Ghouls. Yes. So we're going to be talking about that a little bit tonight. And um, I've started. I've done two other series over the last four years on the Gin. I spent about four or five episodes three or four years ago talking about the gin. And sometime last year or a year and a half ago, we kind of revived that. And that was more <clears throat> from the angle of looking at, and I don't remember his name off the top of my head. I think it was Weissman uh, who had his interview with a gin. Um, he was a, uh, a scientist. Uh, PhD in his field, and I don't remember all the details about him, but he had an experience that he said, I, I wasn't sure what it was at first, but I was pretty sure by the time I was done. And after the second one, I think he had three different separate experiences. Uh, he, he knew they were gin and he had the ability to question them. And so they were very patient with him or this gin was and answered a lot of questions. And I think he brought a lot of credibility to the table, which made his story very interesting. Um, yeah, one or two of those movies, uh, Steph, you're right. Um, Rafa says, I've seen the shadow people fully wake, know nothing about sleep paralysis. Yeah, um, you and me both, Rafa. Now, I can't say that I have seen a shadow person in the strict sense that we hear the stories of them but i've seen a hell of a lot of other things i said when i entered the paranormal field i had great curiosity i wanted to know things i wanted to see things i grew up with the curious now now guys those of you joining us uh, for the first time um i uh, grew up in an era before um almost before color television uh, before cell phones, certainly. And uh, everything was four channels in our black and white TV until I was about 11 or 12 years old when we finally got a color TV. And uh, so uh, ignorance is bliss, uh, says uh, Sarah. Yes. And so um, I grew up with this strong curiosity. Um, didn't have, and the reason I bring up the times I grew up in uh, the, the, the late sixties and all through the seventies graduated to high school in 78. So that puts a context in that era. We didn't have the things we have nowadays for study, for research and so on. 
Uh, not the way people can go and research something and within, oh, what, an hour, uh, they can uh, study as much as some people had to study a year for back then. Go to the library and look things up and talk to people and interview. Now you can get it all in your computer time. Uh, no broadcasting after midnight. That's right, Kalena. Uh, that's, uh, they played the Star Spangled Banner and it went off at midnight. So, except for one show, they started broadcasting. If anybody remembers, uh, this is a slight rabbit trail, Horror Incorporated and Creature Feature, Friday nights and Saturday nights, started at midnight. And you could watch the old 1930s and 40s classic horror movies. Uh, not new horror. Remember, this is the 60s and the 70s. So, uh, all the classic old black and white horror movies way back when. Uh, remember card catalogs? Yes, I do. Uh, they have one on display at our local library, which, of course, is all computerized now. And uh, I said to my kids when we were at the desk I said, the, a couple of weeks ago, and I said, look at that. I said, that's how we used to have to look up books. You mean you had to flip through cards? And I said, yeah, we did. So uh, that's the way it was done when I was a kid. So anyway, all of that to say I grew up with these great curiosities and these curiosities were piqued in me by shows like star trek horror incorporated um outer limits the twilight zone uh all of the night gallery anybody remember that that was the 70s those shows used to scare the shit out of me but at the same time they built up that curiosity that's why Remember, I've told you um, when I was a paper boy, I had an afternoon paper out for the evening paper. It was an evening paper back then, Minneapolis Star. And then they had the Minneapolis Tribune was the morning paper. But on Sunday, if you delivered the afternoon paper, you also needed to deliver the Sunday morning papers, which were about that thick because they had all these inserts. So we'd have to go to the paper jacket about 3.30, 4 o'clock in the morning, get our papers, collate them all. And we had, if you had a big enough paper route, meaning over 20 papers, you had a big yellow metal cart on two wheels that you could tie the handle to your bike, tow it behind you. You could just grab the handle and walk it, which is what we did most of the time. And uh, I used to take that heavy thing and uh, jump off the back stoop in our backyard, which was black and uh, night. And uh, we were on a corner lot and I'd run for the corner where there was a street light. And I had the safety of the circle of yellow incandescence around my feet. <sighs> Catch my breath. And I'd see the spot, the, the, the lamppost all the way down to the next corner. Run for that lamppost and that light dragging this heavy cart behind me, my eyes closed, peeking every now and then to make sure I didn't trip. I was so afraid of the dark, but I was so in love with the curiosities that came from watching all that stuff and exposing my mind to those things. So when we get to something like the gin, well, ghosts before that, the paranormal before that, the gin it's something, pardon me, while I have to adjust this, it seems to be sagging just a little bit. There we go. I think I've adjusted it. 
there. Those of you listening on the radio, you don't get the advantage of seeing the uh, screen. Uh, I've got to adjust this camera uh, because it's my phone and not my computer. And I think it's slow, but sure, it's kind of sagging a little bit. It's kind of like being an old man. It's kind of like going from my buff beach body 40 years ago and gradually watching myself over 40 years decline into, oh, what is that all sagging? That never sagged before. <laughs> That's muscle. And uh, used to be anyway. Anyway, so pardon my the adjustments I have to make to the camera every now and then. So this thing about the gin was something that, along with all the other paranormal stuff that I experienced, I said, there has got to be something to this, or is it all just fairy tales from the Arabian Nights? And of course, as we learned a little bit last night, uh, a lot of those things that you find in the Arabian Nights were stories that were very hardline, hardcore embedded in those societies and in those cultures. So it was very, very interesting. Rafa says, I used to love Twilight Zone as well. Yeah, great show. So um, that's where we got last night, it was kind of getting the, the uh, our feet wet, our toes wet into this again. And I want to get into some of the origins tonight. And uh, since we aren't, uh, we aren't, oh, yeah, no, we are not broadcasting on the radio station right now, believe it or not, because that has to be done through the setup on my computer. Now, the computer works, but the internet does not, so I cannot broadcast that out. This show, by the way, if I did not say it at the beginning, uh, those of you who may have missed the beginning, I'm broadcasting on my phone because my internet is fried tonight, and it's going to be tomorrow, and hopefully it'll all be fixed tomorrow morning. So uh, I cannot broadcast on the internet. I'm broadcasting on my phone. And um, by broadcasting on my phone, I do not have access to the tools that are embedded in my computer that I cannot get all the encoding to broadcast to the radio station. So we're not broadcasting to radio, but we are broadcasting live everywhere else. And this show will, of course, go into archives over on the radio station if anybody wants to pick it up in audio format later. So, having said all that, uh, we're not broadcasting to the radio station, but uh, we're going live right here, and we're live everywhere else. Um, where we kind of left off, and my notes are usually right in front of me. You can tell when I have to refer to my notes with my eyes. Uh, now it's on the computer screen behind my camera and the light. So it's over here. If I'm looking over here, it's because all my notes are over there. Now, scholars in Muslim countries, uh, theologians, philosophers, even scientists, they've wrestled with the nature of the jinn ever since the foundation of Islam in the 7th century. And in the 13th century, the celebrated Persian physician, astronomer, geographer, Zachariah Al-Qazini, Al-Qazini, Qazini, Q-A-Z-W-I-N-I, Qazini. I think it is, wrote a work in Arabic about the universe that defined jinn as follows. He said this, it is held that the jinn are serial animals with transparent bodies, which can assume various forms. And uh, he noted that uh, opinions differed on 
what the jinn really were. He said, some consider the jinn as unruly men, but these persons are the Moetzelia, Ziela. I, I want to say this right. It's a language I'm not used to saying. Uh, M O A T, Moet, E Z I L E H, Ezila, Moetzela, I think. And that's a sect of Muslim free thinkers. And since some hold that God created the angels of light, of fire, light of fire, and the jinn of its flame, and that all these kinds of beings are usually invisible to men, but that they assume what forms they please, and when their form becomes condensed, they're visible. So that's a little recap for, from last night. Pardon me, I don't usually hiccup on air, but I've got hiccups. I'm trying to subdue them. Uh, okay, how's that? Uh, as John Ward would say when we did this show years ago, he'd say, oh, Scotty, so professional. <laughs> He's an ass. Anyway, but I love him. Anyway, so moving on. Um, in the 14th century, Mamluk Egypt, a scholar named Muhammad al-Damiri, made another effort to explain these remarkable creatures in a kind of a zoological, uh, some say para-zoological, uh, opus called Hayat al-Hayawan, The Life of Animals. And the Hayat is an ambitious book that describes 731 different animal species with numerous digressions into theological opinion, folklore, the traditions of the prophet. What are you supposed to say when you say the prophet bless him or something like that? Um, I'm not as I'm not Islamic. I'm not Muslim. So uh, and uh, draws on 585 other prose works and 222 poetic sources. Al Damini Demiri fits jinn comfortably into the world of animals. Now, do you think of jinn as animals? So uh, and by the way, if you're commenting over there and I missed your comment, it's only because. It's on a screen about that big now, as opposed to scrolling down my very big computer. And I saw some posts here, and I'm almost afraid to touch things. Sarah said, there are some similarities between jinn relationships, uh, land relationships, between magicians and familiars. And peace be upon him, she said. That's what she said. There it is. Okay. And so... Uh, uh, with all of this stuff that he's looking into, Aldemiri fits jinn comfortably into the world of animals. He describes them as ethereal bodies capable of forming themselves into all kinds of different shapes. They have reason, means they think. They have critical thinking. They have understanding. They have the capability for hard work. They're different from humans. And it's said that they're called jinn because they are wary and not seen. And uh, he cites a tradition of Abu al-Dorada, Dorada, yes, Abu al-Dorada, um, a companion of the prophet. Uh, peace be upon him. Uh, I'm not mocking him. I do that whenever I do that with everything else. So bear with me. A companion of the prophet. 
And uh, God created three types of jinn, a type which are snakes, scorpions, and vermins of the earth, a type that are the breeze in the air, and a type like humans who are subject to judgment and punishment. Now, Muhammad Assad, uh, 1900 to 1992, he lived, a highly regarded European Muslim thinker, an author who converted from Judaism. His birth name was Leopold Weiss. And uh, so uh, Muhammad Assad described jinn as certain sentient organisms of so fine a nature and of a physiological composition so different from our own that they're not normally accessible to our sense perception. Meaning we don't see very much of them. And if we do, it's, 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 it could just be by accident. If we assume as we must that there are living organisms whose biological premises are entirely different from our own, it's only logical to assume that our physical senses can establish contact with them only under very exceptional circumstances. Hence the description of them as invisible beings. Remember Weissman, uh, who we talked about uh, last year, and his experience in meeting with a jinn. Um, he saw him, I believe, in the doorway, the darkened doorway of old ruins in Egypt. And uh, he did mental things to reach out to them and actually had an audience, according to his account, with a jinn on a couple of different occasions. I have a woman that uh, I haven't talked to her in a little while now, but we were talking a couple of years ago about working on a book together. She's in Australia, Australia, and uh, crikey. And uh, she wrote a book for kids, and it was going to be the ABCs of hieroglyphs. And she wanted me to illustrate it. And and uh, I, I don't know if that project just didn't get off the ground or uh, back burner, but uh, she talked about, she was rather nervous about talking about gin. Uh, as a matter of fact, when I was talking to her was when I was doing this series on the gin on the show and so she um said she had had experiences that she believed were jinn now she was of arabic descent i couldn't tell you what country exactly but perfectly australian her husband as well she had the the very cool crazy australian accent and uh but uh she had experiences that she was very nervous to even talk about from these invisible beings that were in a house that they lived in, in Australia. So, uh, I'm sorry, no, I think it was in uh, in Egypt before they moved to Australia. So, um, if we assume, as we must, this is uh, uh, Weiss, Leopold Weiss, Mohammed Assad, saying, continuing, he said, if we assume, as we must, that there are living organisms whose biological premises are entirely different from our own. Okay, I already, I already read this quote. It's only logical to assume that our physical senses can establish contact with them only, only under very exceptional circumstances. Now, Assad felt the occasional, very rare crossing of paths between their life mode and ours may well give rise to strange um, strange because unexplainable, 
manifestations, which man's primitive fantasy is subsequently interpreted as ghosts or demons and other such supernatural apparitions. We talked uh, last time about the possibility that some think that they are aliens, UFO types of aliens. And uh, they're not those things at all, but that is sometimes the misperception that we have of them because of the, what they're made of and what we're made of and our perceptions of them. How many times have you seen something or someone? Have, I know many of you out there have claimed to see a ghost or experience a spirit and things like that. How do you know? Um, if you're not experiencing a gin. Uh, the pictures I showed in the captain's cabin last Friday, uh, those I think very well could be a gin of that dark figure I caught in a very sunny, bright day in Egypt. And most of you who are regulars to this show have seen those before. Uh, field guy said, I may have seen a ghost on Saturday. Oh, is this the one you told me about? So um, there's that. this is uh, Assad thinks that maybe sometimes uh, when we see these things, uh, his explanation suggests apparitions. And it suggests that jinn inhabit another dimension and that they occasionally enter ours and they interact with us. And such concepts traditionally belong in the realms of science fiction. But should they? Recent work by physicists from many countries on the cutting edge of quantum and superstring theory supports the notion that our universe possesses many more dimensions than the four that we're accustomed to. Length, width, height, and time may be then much more exists than we can ordinarily even perceive, and that the idea of jinn is not so fanciful after all, if you consider the multiverse, or the multi-dimensions multiverse. Not talking Marvel here. So to understand why Arabs and Muslims take the concept and the nature of jinn so seriously, we need to journey there. We need to experience the phenomenon close up and if possible firsthand in the exploration of jinn lore and legend uh, that we're going to be talking about for the next few days. In the ancient Arab, ancient Arab East, um, that uh, where the jinn phenomena was first reported. We're going to look at all of that. Uh, we're going to see how jinn became part of Islam, the revealed religion that laid claim to the mantle of successor of the Judeo-Christian tradition, and investigate a wide variety of jinn legends, beginning in Arabia. And spiraling outward from the Arabian heartlands, we're going to look and how others in the Islamic world view jinn from Iraq to Palestine and Syria to Egypt, Arab North Africa, Spain, Turkey, Islam, uh, I'm sorry, Iran, and the Indian Ocean. And that's Asian and African shores. And we're also going to explore the impact of jinn lore on the literature and the cultures of our world, things that we've been associated with over the years. The phenomenon of jinn is one thing, but uh, the interpretation of jinn 
is quite another. While the phenomenon, the experience of jinn, uh, those interest us greatly. But the only way humans can share an experience is by explaining it, interpreting it, uh, mansplaining it. <laughs> That's what we do. So by sampling and analyzing a wealth of interpretations of the jinn phenomenon, we aspire to approach some sort of truth. Um, this is what I said when I wrote some of my own books. I said, like the Nephilim. I said, you cannot bring the Nephilim into a lab and, and, uh, or the, uh, the watchers into a lab, the Bene Ha Elohim, and watch them and put a human woman in there with them and go, okay, when the green light comes on, you can have sex. We're going to see if you procreate. Um, you know, you can't test that story, but I think there is sort of an ad hoc scientific method in place by all the varied accounts and all the varied stories. And you put those all together and you start seeing a scientific methodology of anecdotal experience. I think that's very valid. Snap it, field guy. Snap that rubber glove. So what I'm looking at here with this little series we're going to do that makes it different, I think, than what we've talked about the gin before. And you might think, why are we talking about gin again? Didn't we talk about gin before a couple of times already? Yeah, we did. But we've talked about all kinds of things more than once. It's to try to educate ourselves uh to understand see i have this big thing and you know me if you're a listener of the show for a long time i want to know things i don't like i know it takes faith faith of the heart oh sorry and that song came to mind uh enterprise uh the theme song that everybody seemed to hate but i liked um but um uh, it takes faith I understand that, but I don't want to live by faith alone. I want to know things. I don't want to say, oh, I know that because somebody said it's so, and I believe it. The Bible said it's so. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. Now, that's an act of faith. I remember the song uh, when I was a youth pastor, and we sang the song with the kids. Uh, and this is a little bit of a rabbit trail, but um, when the universe fell from his fingertips, he decided he wanted some fellowship, but the man and the woman would not submit. So he made a better way. When the moment was right, he sent his own son, who would open the way so that everyone could have hope and believe that when time was done, he'd be able to make us one. And then the chorus, which I would sing to my kids at bedtime sometimes, despite my struggles with faith and religion, to hear with my heart, to see with my soul, to be guided by a hand I cannot hold, to trust in a way that I cannot see. That's what faith must be. So there it is. 
What is faith? Faith is putting your trust in something you can't see. It's a hand you can't hold. I ha I struggle with that. It pulls on my heartstrings, but I struggle with it. I want to know things. And I think the same thing with the, the jinn. This is something like ghosts and spirits and all this other stuff. I want to know why it works. I want to know what's there. I want to experience it. I said, uh, was it in uh, the captain's cabin the other night? I said, uh, I want to experience a gin. Somebody said, oh, don't ever say that. You don't know what you're going to get. And that's very possible. Um, like I said, I don't want to experience something that's going to make me pee my sheets at night. Or scare the shit out of me. Or say, now you have seen me. I must eat your flesh. You know, I don't want that going on. I don't want any of that. No flesh eating, please. I just want to know them. I want to meet them. Sometimes getting bogged down with the details makes you miss the bigger picture, says Sarah. Maybe, maybe so. What did Solomon say? Was it the book of Proverbs or Ecclesiastes? The making of many books, there is no end. And much study is a weariness to the flesh, she said. Sounds very Ecclesiastes. So you might be right. But I want to know things. I don't want to just maybe believe, kind of think that this thing might be maybe true because somebody wrote it down in a book 2,000 years ago. That goes against every grain in me. So my hope is that this journey that we're going to take in this little series is going to tell the story of these remarkable beings in sufficient detail and with enough flavor to satisfy my curiosity. Oh, and yours too. Yes, this is for me. I say I do all these things. I do this show. Everything I do Every book I write, all of that is because it's something I want to do and I want to enjoy. The minute I can't enjoy it, the minute it's no longer fun, the minute I'm not satiating some curiosity, I'm done. I'll exit stage left. So my hope is that it's going to do that for us. This is my curiosity that I hope I can spill onto you. With all my times in Egypt... I wanted to see these things, and I think I may have that figure in that story you know so much about. All of those things are things that are meaningful in building my experience. But you know what? And Sarah, maybe you're right here because even after all the experiences I've had, that some people go, oh, I wish I could have the experiences you have. And yet, I say I'm still unsatisfied. I still have not satisfied that curiosity. It was like, what did they ask? Uh, not Rockefeller. Was it Getty? One of the one of the Pentaveret, <laughs> the Rothschilds, the Gettys, <laughs> the Rockefellers, and Colonel Sanders before he went to off. Well, there's one more family. I can't think of who they were. Anyway, one of them said, he was asked the question, 
how much money is enough? And he was very elderly at this time. He said, he said, just a little bit more. Maybe that's what I have with my curiosity. Hey, Scott Allen, welcome to the chat room tonight. Uh, Vanderbilts, that's the, the Vanderbilts. <laughs> you know you know what I'm talking about, don't you, Kalina? The, the Pentaveret, they live in a place called the Meadows. <laughs> anyway, something totally different. So I hope that this journey starts to satiate our curiosity. That it lays down a youthful path, a youthful, a useful path for further research and inquiry. You know, sometimes I think I must have a speech impediment that I don't know about. So I catch myself talking sometimes, and it's like I'm almost going blah, 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 like like my tongue gets laid up behind my teeth or something. You know, especially when I'm doing my f of, I'm like, what the hell is that? I don't remember ever having that. And of late, recent couple of years, I've noticed that more. Maybe you don't hear it. I feel it. Oh, well, it is what it is. All right. So let's look at, we've finally gotten to the origins. And we've got about uh, 14 minutes left before we leave the radio audience, which is actually not with us tonight. This will be a recording for them to hear over on the radio station tomorrow, archived. But uh, for all of you out here in the, uh, um, the uh, look at me going blank, old man, oh, brain cell. Um, all I need some alcohol with that. Um, the uh, not StreamYard, uh, YouTube, and uh, Facebook, and all the other places where this show is playing. Um, you'll be able to hear it. Uh, I, I think we can just do a little morph over into the captain's cabin at some point. And we'll see if we can take calls on this thing. I think we can. So um, there is uh, a little something I want to read to you here from Zachariah L. Tazzini. He was the cosmographer that we uh, spoke about just a little bit ago. He said, it is related in histories that a race of jinn in ancient times before the creation of Adam inhabited the earth and covered it, the land and the sea and the plains and the mountains and he favors and the favors of God were multiplied upon them. And they had government and prophecy and religion and law but they transgressed and offended and opposed their prophets and made wickedness to abound in the earth. Whereupon God, whose name be exalted, sent against them an army of angels who took possession of the earth and drove away the jinn to the regions of the islands and made many of them prisoners. That was Zachariah El Quazini, El Quazuini, cosmographer. Now, jinn are best known as an Arab and or Islamic phenomenon. Uh, in Arabic tradition, the jinn is a spirit creature. It's often linked to nature with the ability to manifest itself physically. 
The jinn have great powers, sometimes miraculous abilities, we would consider them, which humans normally lack. And jinn are usually divided into five major, uh, can't see my hand, five major categories. John, jinn, shaitan, ifrit, and marid. Now, these terms sometimes overlap, and they're often not as precise precise as uh, one would like. Jan, J-A-N-N, is a collective term referring to the masses of jinn of all types. The term is sometimes interchangeable with jinn. And so jinn is used more often to refer to specific individuals or families or tribes or fire spirits. Jinn can be good or evil, but shaitans, or Satan is the word, or devils, shaitan, Satan, uh, different language. Devils, they're the children and the servants of the chief devil, Iblis, the equivalent of the West's Satan. And they're always evil. Uh, Ifrits are more powerful than shaitans, and most are often pretty evil. Not evil, not evil, they're evil. <laughs> Marids are evil as well and most powerful of all. And all of the above categories have the ability to shapeshift, to shield themselves with invisibility, so their appearance varies depending on circumstances. What do you got there, Rafa? Al-Shatamu. Al-Shatamu. There you go. And they both dress in reds, his field guy. Yakety, yakety, yakety. Well, thanks for your contrib contribution, field guy. <laughs> Always wondered what they wore. So uh, uh, the various categories of jinn were uh, created separately. And according to creation myth reported by the Arab historian Abu al Hassan Ali al Masudi. He lived in the uh, late 800s, early nine, uh, mid to mid 900s AD. He called called by some the Herodotus of the Arabs. You know who Herodotus is, right? Field guy, you know who Herodotus is? Brush up your Herodotus. <laughs> we were giving away free free uh, tomes, books of Herodotus's work. Herodotus Herodotus's works. Uh, when John and I were doing Intrepid Radio years ago. So um, he was called the Herodotus of the Arabs in his uh, celebrated Meadows of Gold. Al-Masudi explains the consequence of this creation. Now, this is from his work. This is written, what, uh, if you're talking nine in the 940s, 930s to the 940s AD, uh, that's how many years ago? Somebody do the math quick. He wrote this over a thousand years ago. He said, it is said that God created the demons from the semum, or the burning wind. That from the demon he created his woman, as he created Eve from Adam. That the demon having bad relations with his woman, she became pregnant from him and laid 30 eggs. Uh, the demon having had, oh, had relations, not bad relations, sorry. 
I should have put on my glasses. Having had relations with the woman, she became pregnant from him and laid 30 eggs. Now, one of these eggs cracked open, giving birth to the Cotabolt, which was, so to speak, the mother of all the Cotrubs. So demons that had the form of a cat. So from another egg emerged the Iblises, in whose number must be counted El-Harith Aban Murah, and which make their home within walls. From another egg were hatched the Maradas, which inhabit islands. Another produced the Ghouls, which uh, chose for their refuge ruins and deserts. Another, the Silas, which hide in the mountains. The others, the Ova, the Ohuas. Somebody, somebody who speaks Arabic, rescue me on that one. The uh, O U A H. A O U I S. Ahoas. I think something like that. Yahoas, uh, which inhabit the air in the form of winged serpents, and they fly around. Marids are evil as well, most powerful of all. Above all, the, uh, I'm sorry, and I, I jumped back backwards. Uh, and uh, they fly around the air from place to place. From another egg emerged the Dausics, the Dausics, from yet another, the Hamasics, from still another, the Hamamis, and so forth, he says. Those are his writings over a thousand years ago. Back of the throat. Oh, oh, the, oh. I'll get it right one of these days, Sarah. So most of these types of jinn are going to be encountered and explained later uh, in this little series that we're going to do. But the egg motif appears in the earliest creature creation myths of many peoples, including the Greeks, the Egyptians, the Hindus, the Chinese, suggesting a pre-Islamic origin for El Masidi's account. But its exact source is unknown. You think of the Ogdode in Egypt, which I've studied, and we've talked about on this show, I've written about in my book, the Ogdode uh, came down in the eight eggs to the creation mound which is uh, where they built the temple of Menadat Habu, where uh, I have been several times. It's a very interesting place. It's in Luxor, just in front of the, the Theban mountain range. The Arabs' belief in jinn um, long predates Islam, and it played a role of considerable importance in the 7th century environment in which the Islamic faith was born. According to this ancient belief, spirits were believed to haunt dark and desolate locales in the desert. And people needed to protect themselves from these beings. And it's often assumed that belief in the jinn who were thought to dwell in the desert originated with the Bedouin. And it was passed from them to the settled tribes. And uh, German scholar Joseph Henninger says this assumption does not seem to me to be well founded now bedouin tribesmen who are at home in the desert experience much less fear in those regions than do villagers or townspeople who are often terrified by the desert and are convinced 
that all sorts of demons and monsters live there. And among the Arabs today, Henniger asserts, belief in spirits is much more intense than among the settled, uh, the agricultural population, than among the Bedouin. So this isn't to say that the Bedouins of the Arab and uh, Arabian Peninsula disbelieve the jinn in the jinn. This belief is very much a part of their everyday lives. But nomadic Arabs are generally less frightened by the jinn than they are their settled counterparts. Why do you think that is? Uh, for the very reason that uh, they live out there, in a sense, amongst them. It's part of their existence. That's what happens out there. we got about three minutes left for the radio audience. And we're going to move to the captain's cabin. Uh, let's see. Can I can I actually fit a little bit more in before we did? Before we do that? Nah, I, there, there is so much more to what I've just ended on. Uh, we're going to talk about William F. Albright. Lord, I got a big text of his sitting on my shelf here somewhere. Uh, my Egyptian works by uh, Albright. Is that it? Yeah, I think this is one of them. Let's see. Oh, it's heavy. It's just an old, dense book. No, this is Breasted, his uh, History of Egypt. Uh, these are some of the books that uh, I collected when I was doing uh, all my writing on uh, Nephilim. And uh, uh, so this one isn't uh, Albright. This is uh, Breasted. So there we go. All right. Radio audience, guess what? Hey, Travis Thorpe. Jinn equals lightning, he says, made of smokeless flame, the magic of God's sky daddy. Uh, El Adonai, Elohim, a thunder god. Excellent, Travis. I agree. You could murder someone with that book. Yeah, you could. Look at this thing. It's so dense and heavy. Um, it's, it's, oh, and the way this is put together is incredible you can't see it the light washes it out but you get the idea oh here we'll lay it on the desk there it is all right so let's get out of here for the radio audience everybody else stick around i want to see how this is going to work on you a tome indeed yes a ton of a tome now we'll see how this is going to work on here i'm going to give it a shot and we'll give it a try. So let's see, where do we go from here? We're gonna go to our exit. And so everybody, you just uh, stay put. We'll be back in a couple of minutes with the captain's cabin and your calls. Stand by. Join us every weeknight at 9 p.m. Central Standard Time, 10 p.m. Eastern. The Intrepid Radio Program, a Scotty Roberts Productions broadcast.
Come on. <laughs> it's not working. I, I ought to. <laughs> Let's try something different here. Let's see. Does this one work? folks, this is Scotty Roberts, and this is the Intrepid Radio Broadcast. I've been broadcasting for about 20 years now, covering such topics as science, politics, the paranormal, weird science, weird world history, archaeology, and the paranormal. Everything from ghosts to cryptids to creepy things that go bump in the night. So every week, I bring you three new episodes. Come and join my channel and also be a patron to this site. So see the details below, and we'll see you here. for a really awesome and amazing graphic designer? How about an illustrator or a photographer? This is Rainy Roberts, and I wanted to tell you how you can get my designer, illustrator husband, Scotty Roberts, to work for you on your project. Do you have an awesome self-published book but no cover, or even worse, a cover that really sucks? Do you need a kick-ass logo for your company or some f***ing awesome graphic designs for your ads or website? Then get in touch with my husband for the best f***ing awesome kick-ass design and illustration. He knows his stuff, and he's been at this for more years than I've been alive. Go to scottallenroberts.com. That's Scott with two T's, A-L-A-N-R-O-B-E-R-T-S.com to take a look at his online portfolio of work or call 651-468-8115. Now go out and kick some ass with some kick-ass graphic design. Hiya, my dad. So he can take me to Disneyland. Brain is gone. Subspace. Brain and brain, what is brain? Dare to wonder. 